following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Once for all, when he offered up himself, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Um, when I started uh, the series on Hebrews, several people asked me if I was crazy <laughs> uh, or just uh, brave. And uh, the reason for that is that, uh, as, we've, as we have seen going through the book, there are these uh, warning passages that are uh, quite serious and um, startling and, 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 and also kind of difficult to explain what they mean. <laughs> um, and if you only saw the warning passages, you might think that the, that the Christian life is on very shaky ground. So one example, the most uh, serious warning passage we looked at so far is from Hebrews 6, verses 3 through 6, summarizing. It says, and, and, uh, It is impossible in the case of those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and of the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. And if we looked at verses like that, it would seem that the Christian life is very shaky, that there's not a lot of certainty here. Um, as he says, it's impossible if we fall away to get restored. And, and uh, I'm taking that a little bit out of context, but it, this illustrates the, the struggle of this passage, of this book. Um, but uh, alongside these warning passages are also uh, passages which give great affirmation of how certain and sure our salvation is. And so it's like kind of putting things on a balancing scale. Uh, he puts these warning passages on one side, but then he balances them out on the other side with these great promises of hope and assurance. Um, so it's important to see how these fit together. Um, and in chapter 7, we see uh, really one of these great uh, promises giving us tremendous assurance that uh, we have a, a better hope because we have a better salvation based on a better covenant. And in communion, we just, uh, we just celebrated Jesus' blood as the blood of a new covenant. And what it means to be Christians is that we, we are no longer under the old covenant, the Old Testament. We, we, we now have a new covenant in Christ. And he says, not only is it a new covenant, but it's a better covenant. So what is exactly does he mean by that? Of course, a covenant is an agreement between two parties. And uh, we would call it in modern language a contract. Uh, and that's really what a covenant is. It's an agreement or a contract, and it spells out the nature of a relationship. And so this is a, a relationship between a God who's saving and a people who needs, need that salvation. And so he, he spells out what that relationship looks like. And, and in a covenant, it also explains the expectations and terms, uh, the stipulations that ensure both sides keep the agreement. And in Bible times, Making a covenant was, covenant was a very big deal. And you, you, uh, it's a lot like we talk about the marriage covenant. You enter into this binding agreement and both sides make promises about how this relationship is going to work. 
so we want to look a little bit, and, and actually he introduces the topic of New Covenant. He will look later in chapters uh, 8 and 9 at uh, unpacking more details about the New Covenant. Uh, but this morning we want to look at um, briefly what is the New Covenant, but more importantly, why is it better? Why is this covenant better? And in spite of the fact of, of the warning passages that we've got to be careful, that, that there's great assurance in our hope of salvation. Uh, and he gives us basically four things in this passage that we can, we can be confident that salvation can be something certain for us. We don't have to be worried that we may lose it or we, we may fall and fall into what he talks about in the warning passages. Uh, first thing he says that uh, this covenant, the new covenant, is better because it's based on an oath. He says, verse 20, And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made priests without an oath. But this one, that is Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Right, so this covenant is better because it's based on an oath, on a promise of God. Now, of course, there were oaths in the Old Testament, and God made an oath, a covenant with Abraham. Um, but, uh, but he's referring here really to the priestly system that came under Moses. So when Moses was on Mount Sinai, God gave him instructions and commands about how the priesthood would work, how this covenant would be implemented through worship in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Um, and that, that covenant was instituted not with an oath, but with commands. Right? So God gave all these instructions, but there was no oath. There was no promise on God's part about how this would work. But he says this covenant's better because it was in, instituted or implemented because God made a promise, and a promise that he bound by an oath to make Jesus our great eternal high priest. Um, so this covenant is better because it's, it's instituted or it's managed, if you will, by a high priest who's eternal, who entered that position through the very oath of God. Um, and an oath is, uh, we, we, aside from maybe marriage, I mean, uh, or when you're 10 years old and you do the whole, you know, blood brother cut yourself and thing, you know, we don't really do oaths a lot anymore. Um, and we, we do make promises, but uh, a promise, is, here's the difference between a promise and an oath, okay? A promise is something you can break with no consequences, <laughs> Right? Uh, other than maybe it just damages your reputation a little. But an oath was much more binding. Uh, when you made an oath, especially in Bible times, you were binding yourself to keep that promise with some kinds of consequences. Right? It was binding. It was, it was somehow guaranteed that you would not just make an empty promise that you could break, but that you would follow through with it. Uh, and, and this comes from a quote from Psalm 110, which is the the author's main passage throughout the book of Hebrews, and he says, The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. God binds himself to this promise that Jesus would be our high priest, and that the way he became a priest was not through the command of the law. In other words, Jesus wasn't a priest because he came from the right family as a Levite, nor was he a priest because he met some requirement of the law of Moses. Jesus is our great high priest by the very promise and oath of God who said that he would establish him as our great high priest for all eternity. Um, this, this last week I had to go make an oath. 
like we don't do this real often, but uh, the Thai government actually requires this for some people. And uh, I have to get recertified as the chairman of our foundation board. And so they require an affidavit. And an affidavit is essentially an oath swearing that you're telling the truth about something. So uh, you go, I go down to the U.S. consulate and I write on this form, I fill out this form, stating the truth I want verified, which is always kind of a shot in the dark for me because I'm not sure what exactly I'm supposed to be telling the truth about, like I'm alive or that I'm really an American, I don't know. But I'm supposed to go down there and, and write down this, this statement I want verified. And then you go up to the officer at the window and they read the statement and they say, okay, raise your, raise your right hand. Do you swear you're telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth? And I swear I'm telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And then she takes and she stamps it with an official seal that says, this guy's telling the truth. And then I take the little form and a little receipt. And I go to the window and I pay 50 bucks <laughs> to prove that I'm telling the truth. <laughs> right, so I'm not sure what actually, which part of it actually proves that I'm telling the truth. The raising my right hand the stamp, or the 50 bucks. But somewhere in there, uh, it verifies that I told the truth. Now, of course, uh, in the end, uh, none of that proves anything. Uh, all it proves is that I paid 50, not 50 bucks and somebody stamped a piece of paper. Um, because uh, it still comes down to the fact of my own character and integrity. I could lie to the U.S. official and waste my 50 bucks, but... Uh, it really comes down to my honesty, my integrity. Am I the kind of person who keeps my word and is good to my word? Well, of course, uh, in this case, God does not need to go to the U.S. consulate, raise his hand, or pay 50 bucks, right? Um, he doesn't need a stamp to verify his oath because it's, uh, God speaks his, his word, and his word cannot change because it's rooted in his very character as one who is absolutely honest and of the highest and most pure integrity. Right? God does not break his word. And he, the, 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 the psalm says that. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. God is not a being who changes his mind about things. Right? When he makes a declaration or a statement, when he makes a promise, he knows everything that's involved in keeping that promise, and he's good to it, to the end. He will not change his mind. Maybe you've had this experience where you've gone out and bought a car and you go purchase this new car and, of course, uh, whoever has the, all the money it takes to buy a new car with cash. Probably most of us can't do that. So you make this agreement with the car dealer that you're going to pay them so much dollars per month and they, 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 you, you sign that paper and they give you the keys to the car and you drive away with this brand new car. It's the coolest thing ever, right? And you drive it away and you can have this new car smell and new car feel and it's shiny and you're thinking, man, this is the best thing I've ever done in my life. And I'm so glad I made this agreement, this contract with them because they just gave me a car for signing that piece of paper, right? And we're excited about that agreement, that promise that we made. Until a month or two later when we're needing to make our first car payment, right? And by that time, you know, the Car, new car smell started to fade a little bit. And we've, you know, it's gotten kind of dirty and not quite the new car that it was when we drove it home. And we sit down to make our first payment and, and we realize, well, I didn't realize that had that many zeros after that. <laughs> a lot more zeros than I, I thought it said. 
And then you look at the fine print and it says you need to pay this amount for 72 months. 72 months. I might not live that long, right? For some of us, we don't have much time left. And what's worse is you start kind of doing the math and you think about how much you drive every month and every year and you go, man, this car is going to wear out about 20 months before the payments do. And you start changing your mind. It's like, what have I done? But I didn't, this is a dumb promise, right? But God is never like that because he knows exactly everything that's involved. He knows the cost involved. And before he promises, before he makes an oath, he commits to all that is involved. He knew the incredible price that would be involved in making this covenant work. What was the cost? We just celebrated, right? Jesus' blood. It is the blood of the covenant. It was by his own blood that this covenant was put in place. And we'll see in a minute how that worked. Um, God knew the price. And yet he swore that he would make Jesus our high priest, knowing fully all that it would cost him and his son to be uh, enter into this covenant. Um, so it's a better covenant. That's not how the covenant under Moses began. And, and, and so this is, this is a better covenant because it's entered into by God by an absolute promise on an oath. Secondly, this covenant comes with a much better guarantee. Um, he establishes new covenant, a better com- covenant, but he guarantees the covenant in a much different way than he did the old covenant. Um, what is a guarantee? Well, in our world, a guarantee is something you get when you purchase, like, that new car, right? Uh, you drive that new car off the lot, or, or you get a toaster. I mean, it can be anything, right? And, and it usually comes with some kind of guarantee. And I always ask, I don't know why I bother here, because I found that the guarantee doesn't actually mean anything. But I ask anyway, like, how long is this toaster going to last? And they'll say, a year. Well, it sounds pretty good to me, right? Um, so, so the, the manufacturer is guaranteeing how long it will work before it breaks, um, which is also guaranteeing that it will break, by the way. But um, at least we'll get some use out of it before it goes up in flames. Um, and, and, and it spells out what will happen if it does break. Usually they agree to repair it or, or replace it if it breaks before the, the deadline, Right? And, uh, and uh, it, I don't know why I asked, because it doesn't really seem to work. And I've had several things break, and I've taken it down to the place where I bought it, and I hand it to them, and I give them the little piece of paper and the receipt showing the guarantee, the, the, uh, you know, the, the guarantee, the warranty that it's not going to break. And they look at the receipt, they check the date, and they count it up. Oh, yeah, no, yep, it hasn't been a year yet. Your toaster died. And then they look at you with this face like, so what do you want me to do about it? Not my problem. And you're like, well, you said you would fix it. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, mm, chai. Right? And it disappears. It disappears and, and forever. Right? You go back a month later. Oh, we don't know. Your, your toaster? <laughs> I've never seen your toaster. We don't know about your toaster. Right? That's how it works here. And in ancient times, it, it, um, it didn't work that way because the, the, the guarantee had to have a promise or a guarantee for the guarantee. Right? You didn't just put out your word that it was going to be this way. You had to guarantee the guarantee. And the way you do that was with a guarantor. Right? A person who would make sure, uh, who would verify 
the promise. Right? So maybe a modern-day equivalent is instead of a guarantee, if you, if you build a, a building, especially an expensive building, oftentimes you will have the builder put up a bond. Right? And what that means is they take a, a huge chunk of money and they put it into a bank account that you have access to. Right? And uh, after they build the building, within a certain period of time of the, the, the guarantee, if something breaks, if the roof falls down, or if it leaks, uh, you can actually access that money uh, as a guarantee, as, as, as something that backs up the promise. Well, that's how it worked in the Old Testament. You had to have a person who would back up the promise. That was the guarantor. A person of sufficient means who offered his belongings or his freedom, or in some cases even his life, as an assurance that, that the, the person would meet the specific requirements of the agreement. Right? So Jesus does that for God and, and for this, this covenant. Jesus, uh, God only makes a promise, but Jesus guarantees that, that the promise will be kept. Uh, and of course, he does that on the basis of his very blood. Right? The cross, as we, as, we, as we share communion, the blood of the covenant, his blood, the cross, his life poured out for us, is the means by which he guarantees that the promise will be fulfilled. Right? God wrote this covenant in the blood of Jesus. And by it, he guarantees that the promises and the conditions of the covenant will be met. Uh, this is very different than the Old Testament. And, uh, of course, the question we need to ask here is, which side of the covenant, which part of the agreement is Jesus guaranteeing? Because it's got two sides, right? God has his side, and we have our side. God's side in this covenant is that he will save us, that he will do what's required to remove us from the bondage of sin and death and will give us new life in him. That's what God promises to do. But in a covenant agreement, there's two sides. We also uh, have requirements put on us. What is our requirement? What are we to do on our side? Well, in both the Old Testament, Old Covenant and the New Covenant, our side is to, is to do what is pleasing to God. We are to walk in obedience. We are to have a life of, that is righteous, that is holy, that reflects the character and being of God. Uh, we are to live in a way that pleases Him. So which side of that is, is Jesus guaranteeing? Is He guaranteeing God's side to deal with our sin? Or is He guaranteeing our side that we will walk in obedience and live to please Him? What do you think? Let's take a vote. No, we won't do that. The good news is what? He guarantees both sides, right? Jesus guarantees the whole covenant, not just God's part. And that's what makes it so different from the old covenant. Under the old covenant, God could guarantee his side, but it was up to the Israelites to keep their side of the deal. And we know how that, how that went, right? Um, God saved them. God rescued them. God was faithful to respond to them when they cried out to him for help over and over again. They cried out. They were being oppressed. They were being dealt with harshly. They were being invaded by enemies, and they cried out to God. God was faithful on his side to rescue them. But how did they do on their side? Were they obedient? Did they live in a way that pleased God? Were they loyal and faithful to him? Well, time after time after time again, they failed their side of the agreement. Right? They sinned. They rebelled against God. They did not worship Him alone. They went after false gods and idols. And the problem with the covenant is when it's broken by either party, the covenant is nullified. Right? 
No, neither side is bound any longer to keep the agreement. And so, uh, so it was a faulty system because the Israelites were never able to keep their side of the, of the, of the contract. Uh, but it's different for us. Jesus keeps both sides. He guarantees God's promise to forgive, to cleanse, to wipe out our sin and to remove it from us completely. Right? That's what His blood does for us. His blood, He can guarantee it because His blood accomplished it. Right? His blood covers our sin. It cleanses us and washes us and makes us righteous and holy and blameless before God. So amen for that. Right? Praise God that He guarantees that work because He did the work with His own blood. But in addition to that, uh, He promises... Uh, to fulfill our side of the contract as well. That we would be a people who walk in obedience, who, who love and worship God, who do what is pleasing to Him. Well, how does He do that? Well, it is also by His blood uh, that, uh, that, that He accomplishes this side of the deal. And what He does, first of all, is He, he, uh, he imputes, that is, He places on us His own righteousness and goodness. Right, so Jesus lived a perfect life. He always did the right thing. He, he always pleased God. And it says that, that through his blood, he, he imputes to us his righteousness. He puts on us his righteousness. So we get credit for all the good things that Jesus did. Now, I wish school would have worked this way, right? I wish, like, you know, they would have taken the best student in the class who got perfect, you know, perfect grades, who got 100% on the test, and they would just count that for my score, that would have helped me a lot in school because I really wasn't that good of a student, right? Um, they don't do that in school, but praise God, Jesus does that for us, right? He puts to our account all of Jesus' goodness. But beyond that, uh, it does more. Uh, so great is the power of his blood and the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection that he promises through his blood it will radically change us into people who want to please him. That was the problem with the Israelites. Right? He said, you have a heart of stone instead of a heart of flesh. You, you, are, you are stiff-necked people who constantly refuse to obey me. You don't want to obey me. That was their problem. Because I'm, going to, I'm, I'm giving you a heart of flesh, a heart that longs to please God, that wants to do the right thing. Right? And so that's the power of the blood at work in us. Um, and... and and so by his blood, it says that Jesus guarantees both sides of this agreement, both what God will promise to do, but also what, what, what's required of us is fulfilled through Jesus who guarantees the, the promise. Um, by the power of his blood and by the power of his indestructible life and the outpouring of his spirit, he will work out this salvation in us. Right, so it's not up to us to do this. It's not up to me or you uh, to fulfill the law. Right? Jesus does it in us and by his power. Uh, and the good news is that even when we fail, uh, even when we don't keep the law, even when we don't walk in obedience, there is always forgiveness. By his blood and by his grace, he covers our sin. Right? So it's a better guarantee. Uh, third thing, uh, the result of all that, a better covenant, a better guarantee, it produces in us a better salvation. Right? 
Notice what he says in verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. And so the Old Testament, they, they would be priests for a season, but then they would die. And there's, there's need to institute a new high priest. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus died, but he rose again. And he ascended on high and he's seated at the right hand of the Father where he continues forever as our great high priest. So consequently, as a result of that, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I love this phrase, saves to the uttermost. Uh, what does that mean? Right? What does it mean that he saves us to the uttermost? Uh, well, it means that he saves us from top to bottom, from beginning to end. It's a salvation that is complete and in every way comprehensive. Um, and it, and it's, it's possible because Jesus is our eternal high priest who's mediating this salvation. So it's not worked under the old covenant under Israel. Uh, God's salvation, in part, was bringing them out of slavery, out of bondage, out of Egypt. Right? That was his, salva- his saving work. And, and God did that in a powerful way. Right? We, we studied through the book of Exodus and we saw all the, the plagues and the miracles, the drowning of the army in the Red Sea. God did cool things to save them. And that was very much a real salvation. Uh, but, but the picture that uh, the author of Hebrews paints is that that was only the beginning of salvation. God didn't take him out of Egypt, take him through the Red Sea and then bring him to Mount Sinai and say, Here! I saved you. You're on your own. Go have a nice life, right? That's not what he did. He said, no, that's, that's only the beginning of salvation. The end of salvation is that I would lead you into the promised land. That I would be, um, and he describes for them the temple or the tabernacles, and one day the temple where, where his presence and his glory would dwell. And the picture of the end of salvation was that they would be in a place where they would live in God's presence, that they would know his joy and his peace, that they would be in an ongoing moment-by-moment covenant relationship with him, where they would have intimate fellowship and communion with him, where they would know him and and he would know them, where uh, he would be their God and, and they would be his people. That part they never got to, right? Uh, The first generation died in the wilderness. The next generation did make it into the promised land, but uh, it it did not go well, right? They never really got to the point where they as a nation lived with God fully present with them. Uh, So the writer of Hebrews says that they never entered into that rest. They never entered into the shalom, the peace that God intended for them. See, they had the beginning of salvation, but they, they did not get the end of salvation. They were not saved to the uttermost. Now, of course, I, I think God, you know, did, did they go to heaven? I think they went to heaven. But as we've been seeing through the book of Hebrews, salvation is more than just going to heaven. Salvation is experiencing the fullness of all of God's promise, coming to the very end of the purpose for which God saved us, not just getting bailed out of, uh, out of hell. Right? But coming to the full place where we experience everything that God has for us and for which Jesus died. 
they uh, did not, were not saved to the uttermost. But he says under the new covenant, this is what Jesus has accomplished and promises for us, that we would be saved to the utmost. Not only the beginning of salvation, the rescue from slavery to sin and death and bondage that comes with it, but to be saved to the end where we know God and his presence is with us continually and where we live with him in relationship and with fellowship and communion. But that's, what, that's what Jesus is saving you to. That's being saved to the utmost. And uh, Not only will we go to heaven, but we'll be in, in heaven, uh, we'll experience heaven here and now. And we go to heaven, we will go there with the fullness of the rewards and joys that he has for us. But that's being saved to the utmost. Uh, and he guarantees this through his, through his blood, through his life shed, shed for us. Uh, but it gets even better than that. He says in verse 25 that as our great high priest, he always lives to make intercession for them. Right? One of the reasons Jesus can guarantee this is because as our great high priest, he sits at the right hand of the Father right now, praying continually for you and I. And this is good news because, um, you know, I send out prayer letters. We send out prayer letters. We ask people to pray for us. I'm pretty sure most of them don't pray continually for me. Right? Uh, I'm feeling like, you know, if they prayed once a month, if they prayed when they read that prayer letter, I'm, I'm doing good, right? Um, and honestly, I don't pray continually for my wife or my children or my grandkids. But Jesus does. Right? He prays continually, interceding for us. And the good news is that God promises to answer prayer. And, uh, you know, we know that. We know, yeah, God answers prayer. Sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says no. <laughs> and he answered, right? Well, that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, God promises that if we meet certain conditions, he will give us everything we ask for. But there are conditions. We, we must abide in Christ and his word must abide in us. We need to have faith and not doubt. Uh, we need to pray according to his will. But if we pray these things, he promises that we will get what we ask for. Of course, that doesn't always work out for us because oftentimes we don't ask with the right heart. Uh, his word is not fully abiding in us or we don't Pray according to his purpose and his will. But I guarantee that is never a problem for Jesus. God's never going to say to Jesus, "Uh, I don't think that's really my purpose on this one. They're in perfect unity. When Jesus prays, his prayers get answered. And the answer is never no. So what is Jesus praying for you and me? Uh, Well, he prays on the basis of his blood which means it's got weight and authority before the Father. And I think what he prays is something like this. And I don't know, I mean, we can look at Jesus' prayers in in John 17, for example, but it's something like this. Father, I have shed my blood to wash and cleanse them. And by the power of that blood and its unchanging purpose, may you so transform them that they may be like us and be one with us to the glory of your name. Something like that, And he's praying that for you and I. So is there, is there pretty good certainty that we can do this? <laughs> if Jesus is praying for us, I think there's pretty good hope for us, right, that this can work. This can work. Um, lastly, uh, it's a better covenant because it's based on a better priest, a perfect priest, and a better sacrifice. Um, 
You know, we could say, well, it's all good, but, you know, how do we know that, that this covenant is any better than the old covenant? I mean, after all, the old one didn't work. How do we know this one's going to work? Well, two things. First of all, as we've been saying over and over in the last few weeks, is that the old covenant was never intended to work perfectly. It was at best a picture pointing to what would be fulfilled in Jesus. Right? So it was never intended to be the real thing. It was only a shadow that pointed to the real thing, which was Jesus. Um, but we have confidence that the new covenant is better because Jesus is the fulfillment, right? He is everything that it foreshadowed um, and that it pointed to. Um, Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And I love this. He he describes who Jesus is as our high priest, the sinless, perfect Son of God. He was holy, meaning without sin, right? Without moral defect or impurity. He was innocent. And again, another word speaking of his sinlessness. Unstained. Uh, that, That word in the Old Testament meant without being ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Right, so there was sin, but you could also defile yourself and disqualify yourself from worship by touching a dead body or by one of a lot of other things. But he was unstained. Right? He was without defilement. And then he was separated from sinners, speaking of the fact that he left this earth, he ascended to heaven, uh, and he is exalted above the heavens. Therefore, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the people. For he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Right? Jesus is a high priest who is perfect because of his sinless character and moral nature. Right? He never sinned. But more than that, he is also the sacrifice. Right? He offered up himself. And how often did he have to do that? Only once. Right? Because his sacrifice was absolutely fully sufficient. Because he was perfect. Because his life was without sin. Because he was holy God. They had to offer lambs daily. Why? Because it didn't work. Right? It was at best a picture. And it was never sufficient to cover sin. But Jesus' sacrifice was so perfect and so good, so complete that it only had to be done once for all, for all sin, for all time, for all those who would believe. So he's our perfect high priest who gave to us the perfect sacrifice for sin in himself. So so those are why it's a better covenant, those four things. Let me just close with this last thought. Uh, If that's true... Right? If it's true that, that we've got this better covenant, a better promise, promise a better sacrifice, a better salvation, where Jesus is praying, where he is guaranteeing for us uh, to save us to the utmost. If that's all true, then what's with these warning passages? Right? What, is, what is with this whole, like, you know, it's impossible to restore those who fall away? Like, how do you put those two things together? Um, God's salvation is so perfect and so guaranteed, so final and so complete. How can he say that it is impossible in the case of those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away to restore them again to repentance? Well, the answer is this, that 
on the one hand, God has done everything to guarantee the new covenant. Both sides. Right? God has done everything to provide and make possible our salvation to the utmost through the indestructible life of Jesus in his blood. Not only to save us from sin and death, but to save us to a life of joy, to a life in his presence, uh, to, to experience the fullness of everything God has for us by saving us. Um, but, but we do have a part, right? Uh, it is still a covenant with a two-sided agreement. And under this covenant, um, Jesus makes certain both God's side and he provides all that's needed for our side to fulfill it. But we still have a part in, in fulfilling it in his power, it is still up to us to somehow keep our side of the deal. There is still a part for us to play. So what is our part? Well, um, there may be more, but let me give you three things. First of all, our part throughout Scripture over and over, it tells us clearly that first part, our part is faith. We must believe, we must have faith, confidence in God's promises that it's true and he will fulfill it. Faith is more than just acknowledging that something is a fact. Right? It's not just mentally saying, yeah, I think, I think that's true. Right? Real faith is living as if it's, living as if it's true. Right? Living as if it's true. Here's the difference. Imagine you are an adventurous 10-year-old boy, and you're out in the jungle or the forest, and you come across a treasure. You come across this really old, cool like metal egg. And you think, this is like the coolest thing ever. It looks like it's 100 years old, and maybe 1,000 years old. And you're thinking, I have found the coolest treasure ever. So you pick up that egg, and you start running home to show your dad. And you're throwing it up in the air, and you're playing with it, and you're just having a blast with this great treasure that you found. You rush into your house, and you show your dad this really cool metal egg that you found. And he gets this look of horror on his face. Like, he just turns white. The blood runs out of his face and he's gasped in horror. And he tells you, that's not an egg. That's a hand grenade. Right? Now, you have a choice here. Uh, you can believe that what he says is true. Or you can think, well, my dad just doesn't know what he's talking about. Right? And, and here's the deal. If you believe it's true, if you take your dad's advice and you think, yeah, I think that is a hand grenade... Are you going to start handling it differently? I think so, right? No more throwing it around. All of a sudden you're going to be like, don't drop it, right? It's going to change the way you live, the way you think about it. Well, that's real faith, right? Faith is not just believing some facts about something. It's believing it to the extent that it changes the way you live. And that's, that's the beginning. We have that part. That's part of our side of the agreement. We must have a kind of faith that transforms us because it changes. We're so convinced these things are true. It changes the way we live. Right? We stake our life on the work of Jesus. Secondly, in all the warning passages, uh, in addition to the warning, he gives a command. And the command can be boiled down to, to, to these statements. Basically, that we need to pay attention to the message. Uh, Hebrews 2.1, Therefore we must pay closer, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We need to pay more attention to the message. Hebrews 5.11, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. 
In other words, you're at risk because you're not paying attention. Because you're not listening carefully to the message. Hebrews 6.11 And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, diligence, right? To have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. That's the same word as being slow of, of hearing. They may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith, faith and patience inherit the promise. Um, I, think, I think the point is this. You cannot have a living and active faith in things you do not know or understand. The problem with the audience that he was writing to is that they had believed the beginning of salvation, about forgiveness of sins, but they, they said, well, that's all I need. Right? I don't really care about the whole end thing. I'm not interested in that. Right? And he says, that, there's great risk in that because you can't have faith in something that you're not growing with a knowledge of and understanding in. How can you believe in something you don't know? How can you trust in something you're not pursuing and learning about? Right? So, so that's the second thing he says. You need to pursue, you need to pay attention to the message. You need to go deeper into the the true and full message of the gospel, not just the superficial surface message. You need to be digging deeper into the depths of what Jesus has accomplished for us through the cross. And finally this. Uh, Notice the warning in chapter, again, the warning in chapter uh, 6, verse 4. It is impossible if they have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Okay, here's the problem. Oftentimes we think that the warning is against continuing on in a life of sin. Right? And here, here's the news for you and I. There, there, is, there will never be a time when you will be not having to deal with sin. Right? Right? Doesn't matter how long you live, you will, you will be constantly failing. Right? Now hopefully the things we fail in hopefully get some victory in some areas. And we conquer those things, and then God shows us a whole new area where we're failing. We didn't even know about it, right? I hate that. But that's like the experience of my life, right? I overcame this great struggle, and all of a sudden God says, whoa, like, did you see how proud you are? It's like, whoa, I didn't see that one, right? Did you see how selfish you are? Did you see how stubborn you are? Did you see how angry you are, right? He's always got something new. And so it's a lifelong process where you will be always falling into sin or being made aware of sin. Right? He's not saying here that if you keep sinning, you're in danger of falling away and, and, and not being restored again to repentance. Right? That, that would be contrary to the gospel. Right? It's a lifelong battle with sin. But what's the danger? The danger is this, that he, he will, it will be impossible to restore them again to repentance. But the danger is to come at a place in life where we, we've so fallen away from God that we don't even seek to repent. Right? We, we no longer come to God and we're no longer, we no longer care about the fact that we're rebelling against Him. That we're not doing what pleases Him. That we're failing. It no longer matters to us. And he says that's the place that's, that's critically dangerous. Right? The good news is as long as we're repenting, we're in the right place. Right? We are where we're supposed to be. Because we're turning to God daily and we're saying, God, I, I see my failures. I see my mistakes. I love that Grace had to start communion time this morning with a time of confession. 
But that should be part of our daily practice is to, to be honest before God about our failings. Um, as we do that, we do two things. One, we claim the blood of Jesus to forgive those things. Right? That's a good thing. We, we, we carry out the covenant promises by receiving his forgiveness. But secondly, we, we turn from sin. We say, God, I want the power of the blood of Jesus to be working in me a hatred for those things. I want to turn away from those things permanently. Right? I don't want to fall back into that. I want the blood of Christ to give me a new heart that I hate those things and I have victory over them. I conquer them. Right? So that I can go on to the next failure in my life that I don't know about yet. Right? And that's, that's the journey. That's our part. Right? That's our part. And God will be faithful. He's given us everything we need to do that, to have faith. He's given us everything we need to see with spiritual eyes all the truth of the message of the gospel and to appropriate it for ourselves. And he's given us by his spirit a heart that's broken and contrite. He's given us the power to be humble and to repent and to appropriate the blood of Jesus for our life. But we have to walk in those things. Right? We have to live them out. That's our part of the, the deal. Right, let's pray. Father God, eternal creator, Sovereign Lord, full of power and majesty and holiness and beauty and grace and mercy and love. Thank you for Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, who came as a man, was obedient unto death on a cruel, horrible cross to pay the price for our sins. And thank you for his risen, victorious, eternal life, for his intercession for us, Father God, thank you for your promise in Scripture that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Holy Spirit, you are the one who brings conviction. Lord, we are you do that in our life. Help us to recognize that your work of salvation, uh, the work that you have started in us, you want to bring to completion. So Lord, help us to daily come before you with confidence knowing that Jesus' work is complete, it's great, it's perfect, and we are able to partake of that, to have that new abundant life. Lord, help us to believe your promises in Scripture. 
Lord, at the same time, there are many around us who think they can gain salvation through their own effort and many of them really try very, very hard but it falls well short of, of your holiness. And Lord, there are also many around us who don't see a need for salvation at all. They don't believe in any of that. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work bringing conviction to those who deny the need for Jesus and even those who deny Jesus or God at all. And Lord, we uh, who work in Thailand, Lord, we pray that today through the Thai church and through uh, those of us who work with Thai that this message will become clearer to them, their need for Jesus. And those of us who... Uh, are in work elsewhere, uh, maybe in communist countries or, or uh, Western countries, Lord, we do ask that you would help us to just shine this message out of our lives, the confidence that we have, not in ourselves, but in Jesus. Lord, help us to walk in faith and belief, day by day, knowing that your promises are true and knowing that Jesus is able. Lord, help us to live in obedience to your word, which we can read in what you have given us in the Bible. And Lord, help none of us to harden our hearts when you speak to us through the Holy Spirit and whether that is ourselves or people we know Lord we thank you that you are patient not willing that any perish but all come to repentance so Lord God as we think of ourselves and we think of our brothers and sisters uh, asking that they would um, walk in faith and obedience and then thinking of those who may have fallen away. Lord, we ask that your discipline would come into their lives as your children who you love. So Lord, these passages are both uh, easy and hard at the same time. Help us to understand more and help us to uh, live by it. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.